Oh, you can leave that stuff there. I'll just stand here, I suppose. Oh, okay. I feel like I'm just standing amongst some sort of forest of musical equipment. It's like, hello, I'm the Adrian tree. This is the microphone tree. This is, you know, it's easy to come up here and then feel like I have to try and G you up. Especially when sometimes I feel like the singing's a bit flat and it doesn't feel as a flow and there's talking and there's this weird willow burn clap going on that's always out of time. I, I try and I pray and I go, Lord, just help me not to be distracted by that clapping. It's kind of <laughs> horrible clapping. No, it's all right. Kerry's giving me the signal. Um, anyway, the point is that for me was a distraction and not necessarily a distraction for other people. I'm just going to be honest with you because you're my church family. I'm not like your pulpit hero up here trying to G you up and blah, blah, blah. I'm a, a needy person just like you are. I'm a dysfunctional person in many ways just like you are. And I kind of, I don't know, I need you just like you guys probably need me. So I don't ever want to get up here and try and inspire you in and of my own strength or with kind of witty sayings or things like that. I want to try and inspire you, I guess, encourage you, edify you with God's word. And so today we have Pentecost Sunday. And to me, that's an amazing thing because 2000 years ago, there is no doubt that something extraordinary was unleashed. You could be an atheist. You could be an agnostic. You could be well-researched and know the Bible better than any of you guys and not believe one word of it and yet acknowledge what are called those essential truths that one, the disciples well and truly believed that Jesus had been resurrected and two, that they were irrevocably changed because of that. Why would 11 people who had seen their Messiah dead and buried, suffering horribly, suddenly erupt with this kind of tidal wave, this tsunami of love, service, powerful preaching and within 300 years the Roman Empire was completely transformed without one sword ever being raised in the name of Jesus up to that point. Something extraordinary happened so when we talk about Pentecost Sunday on the church calendar we're talking about something that's essential to us now because if we want to have a hope at all of being a powerful affect a powerful change of truly being salt of truly being light then we really need to know a little bit more about pentecost sunday and as you know we've been going through this session underneath the umbrella of first love first that's the motif for our little church here first love first reintroducing ourselves to the concept the doctrine the person of god the holy spirit and today, what I want to do is not like some big, deep exegesis of Acts 2, but I want to exegete the metaphors. I want to talk to you about what it means for the Holy Spirit to be presented in the, in the Bible as fire, as life-giving air. The Hebrew word for that is ruah, of water, of living water. And I love metaphors. They're very powerful. I feel like they're little jam-packed kind of history lessons. They have little stories within themselves. And some people don't like metaphors. And I wrote an article a while ago, and I'll just direct your attention to that because I'm not going to go through the 10 reasons why we should use metaphors more. But you can go and read that article later on, and I'll link to it on the website. But today, I want us to look at the spectacular, divine, exhilarating God, the Holy Spirit, from Acts 2, looking at the metaphors, and then again, ask you the question, if this is all about first love first, do you want to go deeper? 
I've asked that question over the last four or five sessions and I want you to open up your heart before God right now and say what the answer is. You don't have to say it out loud. What is the answer before the most holy God? Not, not before Adrian standing up here. Do you really want to go deeper, Willowburn? If we break that down a little bit, what do we mean by that? Well, what I mean is faith, hope, love. They're the three things that last forever. The greatest of these is love. Do you want to trust more deeply? Do you want your people, the people that you love, the people that you perhaps serve in your workplace, school place, do you want them to trust more deeply? Whatever stage of the faith journey, maybe they're at stage zero. Do you want to hope more deeply? This world so badly needs hope, doesn't it? And what a story we have. Do you want your people to hope more deeply? Do you want to love more deeply? Man, the church, when you say the word Christian, even if you Google Christian, Christians are, and Google does its auto-fill-in thing, do you know what you get? You would like to get Christians are loving. Christians are trusting. Christians are hopeful. Do you know what you get? Go and look later. I'll give you one of them. Christians are hypocritical. Christians are, I'll give you the second one, judgmental. Do we want to go more deep, more deep, more deeply? If we do, you need to know there are three complaints. And just bear with me, it might seem a little esoteric and a bit abstract, but I think these are kind of pictures I feel like I've been given over the last, I don't know, four to five weeks. And some of them have come with a fair bit of effort, which I'll talk to you about in a minute. But you need to know that if you want to go deeper and you haven't gone deeper in your Christian walk, in your Christian faith, in your Christian hope, in your Christian love, you need to know there are three complaints. The first is the complaint of the windmill. The complaint of the windmill. There are plenty of windmills on the downs. I love driving out to Oakey. You see plenty of them and there's just something about them that's just picturesque especially when there's a bit of fog or the sun's rising or the sun's setting and just get that big Darling Downs kind of sky, the big expanse. But there is a complaint that the windmill might make. And this is the complaint. The wind blows, the wind has strength, the wind is um, sweeping across the downs, but I don't turn. I don't spin, I don't have power. I am fixed. The trees are moving, there's life in the wind, there's movement, there's energy in the wind, but I'm not turning. I'm not turning. There must be something wrong with the wind. And then you look around, and if you're a windmill, you could see plenty of other windmills, and they're all the same. They're not turning either. They're powerless. And if they're all powerless, well, that's even more reason to think that there's a problem with the wind. That's complaint number one. Complaint number two is the complaint of the hearth. That's an old word. That's simply fireplace. The complaint of the fireplace, the complaint of the hearth. The complaint of the hearth is this. The fire never burns bright. It never burns big. It never burns with heat. It never burns so that it changes its environment. It doesn't change with a penetrating light. It doesn't burn with a penetrating light. It's always weak. It's always going out. There must be something wrong with the fire. The windmill's complaint is there must be something wrong with the wind. The hearth or the fireplace's complaint is there must be something wrong 
with the fire. The third complaint is this, the complaint of the boat. The complaint of the boat is, I don't feel the coolness, the refreshing nature of the water. The water is not taking me anywhere. I am fixed. There must be something wrong with the water. Now these are all pictures that I gathered in the last four to five weeks. And obviously they themselves are metaphors, but it is very easy when we think about these three complaints to apply them to ourselves. I've been applying it to myself. It is a complaint of powerlessness in my Christian faith. It is a complaint of lifelessness. It is a complaint of stagnation. And it's easy to say things, well, when God in his sovereignty moves, then I will spin, then I will burn, then I will float and run with the river. And then we come to Pentecost Sunday. Today is Pentecost Sunday. And you know what? I could easily mount an argument, and we will do this in the future, probably in the next session, a before and after argument, and show you that each of the disciples many times were non-spinning windmills, very unheated hearths, and thirdly, a boat that had a big rupture in the hull and was not going anywhere. But something happened on Pentecost Sunday 2,000 years ago. Like I said at the start, that's the only reason you're here this morning. If God had not given his Holy Spirit in power, in fullness to the followers of Jesus, the church today would not exist. And the church back then would have been unimpressive. There was an X factor. And I encourage you to research this yourself. Why did the church out of 11 uh, disciples, possibly 120 that were gathered around in that small room, why did they suddenly change the world, literally? And like I said, next week, we'll look at that. We'll look at the before and after. But right now, I just want to have a look at Acts 2. I want to have a look at the metaphors of spirit. There's a lot in this passage and you might want to turn there now encourage you throughout the week to read acts one two three in fact why don't you read all of acts acts two when the day of pentecost came they were all together in one place suddenly a sound like the billowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting they seemed sorry they saw in verse three what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them Verse 4 of Acts 2, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. I'm going to pray. Father, as we are wanting or at least feeling the need to go deeper, oh Lord, would you stir up our hearts? Would you protect us from the enemy and from the evil one who would want to deceive who'd want to destroy. And for each precious soul here, may they truly know you in deeper ways. In Jesus' name, amen. So that is Acts 2. That is a brief description of Pentecost Sunday. The Bible gives us heaps of metaphors to describe God, his characteristics, his relationship with us. Like I said, have a look at that blog article to talk, which talks a little bit about metaphor and so forth. But these are characteristics of God, of God the Spirit. He's not a force. He's a person. He's referred to as a person. These are the characteristics of the one who came in power 2,000 years ago. 
These are the one, these are the characteristics, the metaphors of the one who we believe is with us now. The first of this is the ruah, the air, wind, breath. Acts 2 in verse 1, as it says there, they're all together. Jesus had told them to wait. They went and waited and prayed in a little room. And verse 2, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind or, or a thunderous wind. So it wasn't a gentle wind. It wasn't just a little kind of murmur of a breeze that swept around the building. It was thunderous. It was loud. It was violent. It threatened almost or had a threatening sound. But instead, it fills the whole house where they're sitting. So they've been waiting. They've been praying. They've been doing what Jesus told them to do probably for a few days. And we are told that the Holy Spirit comes as a, as a wind, as air, breath. And if you go back to the splendors of the Spirit, you'll see that's not surprising because that's what he's done all along. Even if you're a non-believer, he is empowering you with life. That's part of his functioning. But now in a personal way, he comes. Air enlivens. It literally life. So you think about what we've been given my brothers and sisters, what we've been given is this enlivening presence, this oxygenating, spiritually oxygen, oxygenating presence. You think about the spiritual life that you have without the Spirit. I want you to think about Ezekiel's army. Remember Ezekiel's army from uh, chapter 37? It was all dead bones. The flesh came. What was missing? Life. Imagine a body that is... Has, that, that, that life has just departed from. Some of you probably may not have seen that. Some might have seen it many times. There is something fundamentally, existentially different between the before and after. Reverse that, and that's what he's saying here. As this breath and life comes, that is the difference. Imagine a dead body without life. That is the difference. Enlivening. Read Ezekiel 37. It's a beautiful picture, I believe, of the power of the Holy Spirit to enliven to invigorate, to oxygenate, to bring life. That's one of the functions of this metaphor as we map out this metaphor. Another function is to purify. Right now, great masses of air sweep across the earth, taking dust and debris and distributing it and then basically distilling, uh, distilling purifying over all the earth. If, if, if air did not move, we would not live. And so we know that when the Holy Spirit comes, we should expect a purifying effect. We should expect that there will be an enlivening, oxygenating effect, but there will also be this purifying, making us holy, sanctifying effect, conforming us more and more, blowing out the old dust, the old debris that is so destructive to our personal relationships, so destructive to our relationship with God. God purifies, clarifies with the wind. I also want to point out that the air, the wind, is sovereign. What do I mean by that? I don't mean necessarily sovereign in the same way as we talk about God as being sovereign. <clears throat> but what I want to talk about is the fact that the wind will not change its characteristics for you. The wind comes from somewhere and goes to somewhere else. We don't know where it comes from or where it goes. If we want to 
avail ourselves of its effects, we need to design ourselves for its characteristics. So if you're a windmill, you can't say to the wind, hey, you change your characteristics and blow hard enough to overcome my C's gearbox or just change direction so you'll blow the way I'm orientated. No, the windmill is under the dictates of the wind. And so that brings us back to the complaint of the windmill. If you're a windmill, you're designed according to the characteristics of the wind. The wind isn't designed according to the characteristics of the windmill. The windmill design factors are the governing factors. And if the windmill does not turn, it is not because of the wind. Here's a picture of the windmill. Here's a picture um, of the forecast on that day. I'm not sure how well you can see it, but basically there was 20 knots of wind. There was plenty of wind. And that windmill I showed you at the start was subject to that wind. Now, I don't know whether it was because of its orientation or because it was seized, but it was a problem with the windmill, not the wind. So we should expect to be oxygenated. We should expect to be purified. We should expect to be empowered. We should be expect to be filled and changed. That's the first metaphor. This is the second metaphor of the spirit. <coughs> Fire, energy, light. Verse 3 of Acts 2, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Air, breath, wind, now fire. What does fire do? It burns. What else does it do? It creates light. It creates heat. It's, it's in many ways, it is simply energy being made visual, the, expen the uh, extension of energy being made visible. And we know that fire, like we said, enlivens. In the Bible, in the beginning, let there be light. I believe that's that energy bringing light that changes the whole cosmos and, and brings a potential for planets and suns and all those finely balanced cosmological constants that if they were any different, we would not exist today. That's all happening in the beginning. Let there be light. Light and energy from the throne room in Revelation. Light and energy and fire leading the Israelites across the desert by night. A pillar of fire by night. Nehemiah picks up on that and he says, by day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire. Your great compassion did not abandon them. Light, energy, fire within the temple and the tabernacle. Remember that picture? The second thing that fire does, we know it purifies. There are many verses I could give you, but here's one from Deuteronomy. We took that sinful thing of yours, that calf you had made. They began worshipping a calf in the desert. And I crushed it, this is Moses speaking, ground it to powder and threw the dust into the stream that flowed down the mountain. So they crushed it, they burnt it in fire, it says, and then they blew it away. <coughs> the Philistines in 1 Chronicles, Chronicles were told, abandon their gods, and David gave orders to burn them in the fire. To burn all those gods in the fire. You know, if you have anything in your, in your heart, in the deepest part of your heart that is an idol, that is God-shaped, but it isn't God, i.e. it consumes most of your time, it consumes most of your affections, there's only one thing that that deserves, and that's fire, because nothing that is an idol, that is God-shaped in your hole, can truly ever, ever fill the true God-shaped hole that's there. We are told that in the presence of God, there is joy everlasting. There are pleasures forevermore. 
And fire is also sovereign in the same way that wind is sovereign. It will not change its characteristics to suit your fireplace. Your fireplace, your hearth has to be designed in accordance with the characteristics of the fire. And the same fire that can bring light and life can also destroy. He says that God dwells in a fire. In Hebrews, we're told that he's a consuming fire. If you do not approach him on his terms, on his purifying terms, through his son, the Lord Jesus, you're approaching a consuming fire. We're told in Exodus that the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. They looked up and they could see, the Israelites could see consuming fire. We're then told that a bunch of complainers rise up. And because I think it's so close to God's presence that in an instant fire just springs out and consumes them because of their complaining. Fire out. And we think the Holy Spirit is a dove. He's not. He's God. Fire, energy, light, sovereign. The complaint of the fireplace is that I don't seem to burn bright. I don't seem to burn with heat, with changing kind of heat, with changing light. The fire is quickly quenched in a fireplace that isn't fanning into flame, this gift. Or it could just be a blockage. Have you ever seen one of those fireplaces where the chimney is blocked? You can't get any heat in there. There's like smoke pours out through the whole, uh, through the whole house. But the fireplace can't complain about the fire. The fire will continue to produce heat and light according to its characteristics. So when we are orientated though on the fire, when we are fanning it into flames, when we are um, approaching it on its, on its terms, you can expect to be purified, expect to be energised. The third metaphor of the spirit and the last one I want to look at today is water. And in the Bible, it's not just seen as stagnant water. That's the trouble. I think with many of us, we have these stagnant pools that we're drinking from. None of you would go out now after the rain we had a few weeks ago where there's a pool and drink from it, would you? So often, though, that's how we approach God, God's spirit, the power that's available. It's like we've had this old idea of who God is and we continue to kind of sip from, you know, brown, muddy pools. Always in the Bible, we see the, the, the power of the spirit as flowing, not just as a stagnant pool. Remember what Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed him were later to receive. And we certainly see the power of the spirit flowing, streams of living water, this kind of metaphorical sense of life coming to the world as the disciples go out after Pentecost. That's why in Acts 2, 4, our current passage, it says filled, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. That's kind of liquid language. It's the same sense of being a cup being filled. Waters, fountains, rivers. That's how the Holy Spirit or the characteristics of the Holy Spirit are seen. And of course, they bring life. There's the old swimming hole again. I love the little, it's almost, well, it's, it's fed from a fountain up in the mountains and it flows down through there. It's, I've never seen that creek dry, even in the worst drought down in northeast Victoria. Flowing. You can drink from that water. You can swim in it. It's great. When we were in Africa, the one warning from my mum was do not swim in those creeks because they were stagnant pools. Only ever swim or drink as a general rule of thumb in flowing water. 
because it has a cleansing effect as it flows. Some of us don't really experience that flow very much. Feels like we're kind of being refreshed, but really we're just, I don't know, drinking from that kind of muddy pool. But if we are orientated, if we are approaching the water on its terms, we can expect it to purify us, to make us more like our Lord Jesus. We can expect it to wash. Remember all the temple implements were washed in what? Water. The priests themselves would bathe themselves in water. The picture of the Israelites as they go through the Red Sea is one of being washed. And that's what Peter ties into later on when he talks about baptism. That's why many of you who've been baptized, um, you come to the Lord, you repent. That's why it has to be as an adult. You need to repent. You need to say, I want to be cleansed. And in that moment, as you claim the Lord Jesus and what he has done for you, in that moment, there is a spiritual baptism. You are actually baptized by the power of the Spirit and then you are brought into oneness with him. And then as a natural consequence, because we always want the physical to uh, reflect the, the, the spiritual, we then go down into the water, completely immersed, come out again to show that spiritual reality of being washed. But I want you to understand that the waters, the fountains, the rivers are also sovereign. They flow. The water has its own rules and they flow in accordance with those rules. They act in accordance with those rules. If you want to get hydroelectric power, you don't change the characteristics of the water. You avail yourself of them. If you want to drink deeply of clean water, you don't just stay at the pool. You come to the flowing water. If you want your boat to get out on the water, spiritually speaking, and see the world, get it out of the shed. And remember that just like the fire, the same fire that brought life could bring death, so too water. Remember the flood? The flood. You approach the water on, its, on the wrong terms and the sovereignty of the water will destroy you. We saw that uh, only four or five years ago with what water can do. We have to approach it on its terms. And so when we come to the complaint of the boat, if you aren't moving, if you're just in a shed with a form, of a sea-going vessel or a water-going vessel, but you aren't out there, you can't blame the water. If you aren't moving, if you aren't flowing, it isn't because of the water. It's because of the boat. When you are orientated, you can expect to be energised, enlivened. You can expect to be purified by the water. You can ex expect to be swept along by the sovereign will of the Father, as he operates through his spirit in that kind of liquid sense, in that watery sense. And I don't, later on, we're going to talk with the elders and just say, hey, have you ever experienced this kind of thing? Oh, I have, and I want more of it. So when we come to Pentecost Sunday, what I want you guys to get in a little bit of sleepiness or whatever is this. These are massive metaphors of power. This is not a spiritual kind of flimsy, fairy floss, ethereal feeling that's going to keep you safe at night. Do you, do you understand? It is fire. It is water. It is wind and air. It is powerful. You put your hand in the fire on your terms, you're going to get burnt. You refuse to orient, orientate yourself to the life-giving atmospheric wind, you'll never turn. And you can blame the wind, you can blame the fire, you can blame the water, but the, ca the, the, the true reality will be that it is your problem.
God has given us so much. What, what, what other religion? What other religion promises God himself for power, life, presence, prophetic light? What other God does that? I don't know. Please name him for me. So why no power, life, presence, prophetic light? That comes from the splendors of the Spirit. You can have a look at session one. Why no power sometimes? Maybe many times for us. Why are our lives not marked with life-giving difference? Ask yourself this in your workplace, school place, home place. Is there an X factor at work? Is there something that is causing people to go, you know what, you might actually annoy me, but there seems to be this sense of life about you. There seems to be this sense of movement. There seems to be this sense of like transcendent, not that they would use that word, but something beyond what is happening right now. You know, these other people over here, as soon as something happens in the workplace, boom, they're complaining, they're whinging, they're carrying on. But you, you kind of, yeah, yep, you, you know, you're kind of acknowledging the critique, but at the same time, you're saying, wait, 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 wait. What's next? Where's the restorative part of this? Where's the redemptive part of this? How can we make this better? In your relationships, maybe you've just so got caught up in relational patterns now that you are just, oh, he'll always be that way, she'll always be that way. What are you actually saying? You're saying that the sovereign power of God, which is like wind, fire, water, is not enough. Or it's just irrelevant to you. Now ask yourself that. If you want to go deeper, what's happening in your workplace? What's happening in that, those times at home? What's happening in those times at school? Why no purifying life? <clears throat> Why no power? And I just want to put this to you. Probably, not always, but probably it could be because it is not in accordance with the sovereignty of the, of the Spirit. We have not orientated ourselves. The windmill is seized or turned away, out of wind. The fire is quenched. The boat is ruptured in the shed. So how can this be if he is sovereign? Because shouldn't he just sweep through us, empower us like a lightning bolt moment? I want to say to you that this is because he has sovereignly decreed to relate to us as a father to children. Remember, Jesus himself said, our father. Remember our memory verse. Our memory verse is Abba, father. He could relate to us as a king to a slave. He could relate to us as a thermonuclear force in the sky to just carbon entities and just vaporizers. That is how he could relate to us. Instead, he relates to us as father to children. There is no other religion like this. You will not find it in Gautama Buddha. You will find the force, essentially. You will not find it with Muhammad. You will find, inshallah, Allah. You will not find it in the Hindu deities. You will not find it in the new kind of moral therapeutic deism where God is a force and a friendly force in the sky. You will not find it there. You will find it here. Abba, Father, the Spirit himself, testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And yet, because he relates in this way, he sovereignly determines that you will relate to him as a son, as a daughter. That is his ultimate aim for you. Guess what? What can happen between fathers and sons and daughters? How many dysfunctional families are out there? So many. So many. And I want you to know that God himself, it says here, is grieved when that happens. This is talking about the Israelites in Psalm 78. They grieved him. In Ephesians 4, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Go back to session 4, the grief of the Spirit. Listen to that again. 
It says here in Isaiah 63, in their distress, he too was distressed. This is our God. He is distressed. He is grieved. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Jesus wept over the sin that caused his um, friend Lazarus to die. That is how he relates to us. So if you want to go deeper, you need to understand that his awesome, magnificent, splendid power needs to be approached on its own terms. And he has given you that opportunity. He will draw you. He will convict you. He will preach a sermon at you every time. You'll go out of this building. It's a much more interesting, exciting sermon than I could ever give. The sky, the beauty of, of creation, the conscience in our hearts telling us what we ought to do. All, I believe, the power of the Holy Spirit at whatever part of the faith journey you're on. So if you want to go deeper, if you want to trust more deeply, if you want to hope more deeply, and if you want to love more deeply and you want that for your families, for people around you, you need to reorientate, guys. One way you could reorientate is actually acknowledge that when you come to church on a Sunday, it's an awesome time where the saints get together if we have orientated ourselves properly. If we have been up at incredibly late hours and now we're feeling all sleepy, you're not orientated. That's just one basic way we can orientate ourselves. But if you want to know more, if you want to go deeper, stop saying it, do something about it, turn into wind, fan into flames, get out on the water. And in fact, what I've come up with is this little triple O thing. So we know that when we die at triple O, we're kind of in great need. I want you to understand that as a person, without the power of the Spirit, without the filling of the Spirit, we are always in great need. Okay? We are in great need. So you need to triple O in an argument. You need to triple O. The first O is orientate. In sort of the dulling of love or boredom in your family, you need to triple O. In work, in school, in moments of trial, of joy, you're going to need to triple O. Okay? In a call to, say, manual ministers or to serve in the church or to serve in your day-to-day -day lives, you're going to need to triple O. In order to live this life right to the end in Pentecost Sunday power, you're going to need to triple O. You're going to need to orientate vertically rather than horizontally. Don't look at the other windmills. Don't believe the internal hype about uh, stuff that the, it's always been that way. It'll never change. No, no, no. We need to orientate. We need to reorientate. And this is about reminding us of who we really are, of who God really is. It's about reminding us that if we remain in the flesh, horizontally orientated, we'll fester in the flesh. It might feel good for a bit, just like a branch that's broken off looks good, flowers look good, but then what happens after that? That's what's happening in the spiritual. We need to understand that with him is true joy. Pleasures forevermore at his right hand. That's what it says. That's cool. So this is about an upwards orientation. And to finish off the sermon today, the first O is orientate. And when we think about orientation, what I'm thinking about, I just had that picture of the windmill. If it's turned out of wind, it will never turn, or very, very weakly. When it turns into wind, man, I, I was trying so hard to get a photo of a windmill turning. And yesterday and last, and last few days, the high-pressure system's moved over. At the center of a high-pressure system, there's not much wind. And I believe this actually is a picture of God as well. He is moving when he deems fit to move. But if we aren't turned into wind when he moves, we miss out. 
Anyway, I couldn't get, I couldn't find a photo with a windmill. I went out to all my favourite windmills. I sat there for about 15 minutes until my phone ran out of power. It was very frustrating. But we need to remember from session two and three, there are responsibilities to the spirit. The first one is live, pray, depend on him. That's how we orientate. We come to him, we live, pray to him. So it's like, okay, I'm having this issue right now. I'm struggling in church or I'm struggling uh, out in the workplace with whatever it happens to be. I need to orientate. Well, first and most basic thing is to pray in that moment because as soon as you pray, you're actually lifting your eyes vertically, at least spiritually speaking, aren't you? Seeking his help. And keep on asking. Don't give up just because you feel like you didn't get an answer straight away. Then in your day-to-day rhythms and your day-to-day patterns, are you in the Word, fellowshipping in the Word? So like, like um, you know, you're getting to know more of who God is. If you don't have that, you're never going to be orientated to Him. You're just going to believe every lie that comes along. And thirdly, enjoying the fellowship of the saints as they share with you, as they minister to you and as you minister to them. 51, one another's. That orientates us back to who God is. Because as we see God working in these plain people, you know, nondescript, kind of just, you know, that's all we are. There's an X factor that comes and you get to see that X factor and that encourages and edifies you. These are all ways we can orientate on him. So how's your fellowship times? How's your prayer? How's your, how's your Bible reading? I'm not saying to do these things in your own power. I'm actually saying to pray and ask God to help you do them in the power of his spirit. The second O is open up. Today, you've heard me give a sermon. I believe it's mostly been from the scripture, hasn't it? Scriptural principles, scriptural theme. Yeah, I didn't do a deep exegesis, sorry, but I did do an emotogesis. Brought out the emotions, the, the metaphors of the spirit. So as you contemplate these things and as you think about these things, or you hear a song that kind of makes you start thinking, or, you, or your, your wife says something to you or whatever, I want you to open up. I want you to open up to the possibility that what they're saying could possibly be true, whatever it might be. I just want you to soften yourself for a minute. So many times, gravity pulls us towards, internal gravity pulls us towards, no, nah, nah, that's rubbish, or no, nah, that's just irrelevant. I want you to stop, pause, and go, Lord, help me, help me see. This is what Hosea says about that. Break up your unplowed ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness on you. Break up your unplowed ground. It could just be in the moment. Lord, help me. Help me change. Help me understand. Soften, yield, repent. And then the final O is obey. I believe that after we orientate, when we open up, it will always express itself somehow in the physical. You might need to say sorry to someone. You might need to go and change a pattern of behavior. It will always come out in an expression of arms and legs. Love. Arms and legs love is serving. Arms and legs love is holiness in his power, living holy lives, getting rid of stuff, cutting off the hand that causes you to sin. That's hyperbole from Jesus that says, if it's so serious that it's going to cause you to sin and jeopardize your life, make other relationships dysfunctional, get serious with it. It will always lead to some sort of obedience. Do you understand? Orientate, open up, obey, triple O orientate, open up, obey. It's just a silly little acronym. But far out. If this was lived to orientate in the day-to-day, if this was lived, imagine Willowburn in Acts. Imagine Willowburn as a little house church in Jerusalem. 
and Pentecost, we hear of something that happened to a bunch of other believers, we're going, whoa. And now that same power flows through us. Imagine that. How cool would that be? You know, that, that wind that would just blow and change, the fire that would burn, the water that would flow, we would truly be light for the world. Just imagine that. And I just want to read a little quote. Nearly done. It's this. It was from one of my favourite singers. He said, I would like to encourage you to stop, think of what, stop thinking of what you're doing as ministry. You may have got the impression, I want you to minister more in this church, do sound, or I don't. I really thank everyone that's put music together. I thank you for your service. Start realising that your ministry is how much of a tip you leave when you eat in a restaurant. Now, if you're in a restaurant back in America, you know, guys don't get paid for tips and things like that. But the way that you conduct yourself in the restaurant, here we don't um, tip that much, but you can. When you leave a hotel room, whether you leave it all messed up or not, now, what happens at a hotel room? You're there, you're kind of in relaxation mode and you decide to leave. The last thing you want to do is kind of do a big cleanup, right? Orientate. Open up. Obey. Triple O that. Triple O it. Whether you flush your own toilet or not, you leave a big skid mark in the bowl. You hate it when you see it. Well, how about you do something about it? Would that not make a difference to someone? Your ministry is the way that you love people. And you love people when you write something that is encouraging to them, something challenging. You love people when you call your wife, wife and say, I'm going to be late for dinner instead of letting her burn the meal. You love people when maybe you cook a meal because you know she's really tired. You love people being respectful towards them. That is much more important than doing ministry. And you know what? In those moments, that is when you need the power of the Holy Spirit, is it not? Because everything in you will just be tired. And I just want to encourage you, there is a self-sacrificing principle here. You have to sacrifice something. It's going to cost you something. It always will. It will always hurt in some way. It will always mean giving up a little bit of time in the hotel room, finding a silly toilet brush and cleaning. And only God will see that looking after your wife when no one else is seeing or looking after your husband or looking after your friends, that all requires Pentecost power. And I want you to think of this as we finish off the sermon. Why? Why? Why should we even bother triple owing things or getting serious with God or going deeper? Because isn't he good? Isn't he amazing? All those songs we just sung. Isn't he splendid? Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he powerful? Isn't he mighty? Isn't he worth getting, knowing, getting to know more? It's mind-blowing that he would give us his spirit. We've been singing that song immeasurably more. And I want to finish off with this quote. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Teach them to long for the endless immensity of God in his Holy Spirit. If you're a windmill that isn't turning, if you are a fire that isn't burning, if you are a boat that isn't going anywhere, I want to encourage you to hunger for the endless immensity of God and who he is. 
because that changes everything for you. And who he is, is God the Father who comes as God the Son, who dies on the cross, who takes the nails, takes the wounds for you, rises again, sends his spirit, just gives us everything. Sin and dysfunction, they separate us from that. We know it deep down. I don't need to convince you of that. And I just want to encourage you to hunger for the endless immensity of God in his Holy Spirit. Would you? Would you keep seeking? Keep asking? Keep knocking? We're going to come to a time of communion before we get together with the elders. I encourage you just to prepare your hearts a little bit as I pray. We're going to um, come and grab the... I'll come and avail ourselves of some bread and we're going to take a little portion of juice which does no justice at all to the immensity of the sea, to the immensity of God's love for us, but it is at least a representation. I want you to think about all that he has done and as you come, cleanse yourself, soften the hard ground, yield, repent, open up, just consider and then come to this table because he has made a way. This is for you if you love the Lord Jesus. If you have felt something inside you, turn towards him in a personal, relational way, not as a system of values, a religious system, but as a person. You want to give thanks? You want to remember him? That's why we come to the table today. Let's pray. Father, these are just words from me, but I pray, O Lord, that they would, in so much as they reflect your ways, reflect your characteristics, I pray that they would bring, as water brings life, as fire cleanses, brings illumination as wind oxygenates. I pray in that way, as we consider, as we listen, that life would come, please, Father. I thank you for this precious group of people. I pray that they would know deep down what it is to hunger and thirst for the endless immensity of the sea, to to soften, to yield. And I pray that as we come to your table today, we would remember that it is not because of us, but it is because of you and your ways that we live. And thank you, Father. Please move upon us with power. In Jesus' name, amen.